Please stand for the reading of the reading of the gospel. Our gospel this morning comes from the tenth chapter of Saint Mark, in a in a chapter of of Mark's gospel where Jesus is teaching and folks have gathered around him. Lots of folks are gathering around Jesus. And so this, this reading begins with people who are bringing little children uh, to him in order that Jesus might touch them. And the disciples, however, spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let these little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms. He laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This week, if you've been uh, watching the, the... the news a little bit as probably have because of tragedies in Afghanistan. Of course, tragedies around the world just with some of the, uh, the difficult challenges we're facing with fires and, and uh, hurricanes. And we pray for our brothers and sisters along the Gulf Coast, don't we, as, as they prepare um, their lives, their homes for, for what sounds like just a very difficult time. But the images in Afghanistan have been particularly um, frustrating and sad. I mean, folks who have just, uh, who, who, are, who, who are desperate um, victims of terrorist bombings and military personnel who are giving their very lives for the sake of some sense of, of freedom. Boys and girls who just want to go to school, but they're not even allowed to go to school. Children who, girls and women who have been allowed to, to be educated in that system for the last 20 years. Now, all of a sudden, their whole future is, is in question. Uh, the images of them and the interviews that we're beginning to see and hear of some of the women um, in that community are just remarkably frustrating and, uh, and very, very sad. So today, I, I have to tell you that... Um, that normally as a preacher, one thing you learn in seminary is that you're always in, in sermon. I'm not proclaiming me or, or my opinions. I'm trying my very best to proclaim a gospel message, a, a message in which God is front and center, a message in which the love of God uh, permeates through all that we say and all that we do. The amazing grace of God that becomes that comes to us in remarkable, surprising, and, uh, and, and fantastic ways. That's certainly what we hope to do anytime we stand up here before you. But today, and it's not that I'm not going to do that, but I have to tell you that I'm, I'm instead today just going to offer a shameless plug. <laughs> it's true. This sermon is going to be in some respects of long advertisement, and I just want you to know that, okay? Because what I'm going to be talking a little bit about is this remarkable phrase when Jesus says to them, meaning the children of God, or the children that have gathered around him, to them belongs the kingdom of God. And so for us to take a a closer look at this idea of kingdom of God, and that this kingdom of God is, is so beautifully revealed through these children, I think it's important for us to at least live lift up and to acknowledge, to celebrate and to encourage the ministries that are a part of this congregation and this community and around the world um, who, who prepare kids, youth, and young adults for the futures, for their futures and for the future of this society. So that's what we're going to do. Is that all right? All in favor, please say aye. Thank you very much. In 10th grade, uh, we, we had to read um, Lord of the Flies. Jerry, I willingly read Lord of the Flies. 
Yeah, do you love that book? Well, then bear with me because I might have it a little bit off today. I'm just going to give a brief summary, and I probably should have done a better Google search on this Lord of the Flies. I didn't think about Jerry, an English teacher, being sitting in front of me today. But as I recall, let's just have this conversation. A group of boys who are, get stranded on an island and have to learn to take care of themselves and survive. Is that essentially sort of what goes on? Sort of. I enjoyed the adventures, but I have to admit I got lost with the idea that kids could rule much of anything, especially when they begin their nightly ritual, what felt like at least sort of this almost like satanic ritual of slaughtering a pig or disagreements that would eventually lead to all kinds of chaos, like the, essentially the burning down of the forest in the, the island's forest. It ended in total anarchy and fear, but, but in any case, I'm sure there are multiple messages that, 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 are, that are drawn from the book, and for that, I would encourage you to speak with Jerry after worship today. I'm sure she'd be happy to talk with you. But one is maybe at least sort of an underlying message that is maybe not the intent of the author, but that kids aren't capable of leading anything, right, without, without great risk of disaster. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the past few weeks, and in the past week in particular, but, but really this is stretched back as far back as several years, about why uh, this sort of query and this kind of worry, quite honestly, almost hand-wringing kind of worry of, of why young people aren't taking places of leadership in our communities, our groups, our organizations and churches. After all, the average age um, of a church member is 54, of a Rotarian, 58, the average age of a U.S. senator, 63, the average age of a Catholic priest is 70. It's really, and please don't take offense when I say this, but I mean, with those kinds of numbers, it's very, very clear that it's old people who rule the world, right? Right? And so that's okay. I mean, I'm sort of in that group too, but, but where are the young folks, you might ask. As many of you know, because I just mentioned it, Barbara Rufty died this past week. Again, she was 91, a tireless advocate for the community, for, for um, schools, her church, her family. But I was really fascinated last week when I met with her, family, with her children and discovered that she learned leadership and responsibility at a very early age. In fact, specifically at age 10, when she had to run her aunt's cafe. Now, granted, it was the middle of the Depression. Money was hard to come by. Kids had to contribute something. And since her father had died at age when she was six years of age, Barbara didn't have much of a choice but to step up as a leader, literally as a leader in her family um, system, even though she was just a kid. So step forward many years, if not decades later, we shouldn't be at all surprised that later in life she found incredible joy lifting up, continuing to encourage, nurture, preparing children for the sake of leadership, training them, giving them responsibilities beyond normal responsibilities, beyond the responsibilities that are often shared in, in societies, um, giving them what, what they need to receive in order to be prepared and trained, nurtured as leaders. She invested in them with significant time and resources. It's not an unusual model, to be quite honest. It's a model that societies have been following for centuries. Uh, societies have always invested in kids. Why? If for no other reason, there's a selfish reason. It's to help sustain our 
future. I mean, we can't, we can't live into the future without preparing our kids today to take over those leadership responsibilities in the future. So societies have taken very seriously the importance of nurturing, training, educating their kids until they have the chance to be recognized as full members of that society or of that tribe, oftentimes marked by a formal ritual. You've heard of some of these rituals, the bar mitzvah in, uh, in Jewish society for 13-year-old boys, the bat mitzvah for 13-year-old girls. Likewise, the quinceanera ritual for 15-year-old girls in Central and in South America, the rum spring tradition among the Amish when 16-year-olds, boys and girls, are allowed finally to, to leave their community for the first time, but so that they might experience the real world. And the Maasai tribes, we see so much, so often on Nat Geo or some other channel in Kenya, Tanzania. Theirs is a remarkable 10-year process. It's a journey that's 10 years long. It begins at age 10 and ends essentially at age 20, where the, 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 uh, the, the boys to become men, the girls to become women, have to learn the necessary skills of taking over essentially the tribe for the boys to protect the tribe, for the girls literally to manage the tribe. It's a very focused process uh, of 10 years. What about in our own society? What about in our own tribe? When is a kid ready to lead? At what age is someone ready to take on the responsibilities of our society? When would we um, say, okay, this child is ready? 13, 16, 18, 21, 25? What, what is that sort of age? When do we know that a child is ready to be given the responsibilities of leadership? When we hand over the keys to the car in a figurative sense or, or at least share, fully share those keys of responsibility? All this sounds maybe like a silly question and maybe not even worth um, preaching about on a Sunday morning, but, but several things come into play here. And, and I guess it, it, it sort of was welling within me because of, of this remarkable um, sort of almost aside in, in Mark's gospel. When Jesus interacts in beautiful ways with children, listen again, people, and this is a time of teaching for Jesus, People were bringing children, little children, to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But, but the disciples were rebuking them. I don't know why. The Scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe they were being noisy. Maybe they were being messy. Maybe they were excited and they were running all over the place. And, and, and the, the disciples knew that Jesus had so much to teach and so much to offer. And so I can only imagine they were rebuking those who were interrupting anything that were causing some kind of distraction. <laughs> right? But Jesus, when he heard their rebuke, Jesus rebuked them. Jesus was indignant, Scripture tells us, which means he was outraged. He said to them, look, let the little children come to, to me and do not hinder them. Do not stand in their way. Do whatever it can to remove whatever obstacle, whatever barrier, whatever stumbling block may be in their way. For to them belongs the kingdom of God. To them belongs the kingdom of God. Through them, you might see and encounter the kingdom of God. Through them, you might see and enjoy and experience the kingdom of God. And so at that moment, then Jesus took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. It's a beautiful scene, right? I mean, it's a lovely scene. If anyone went to kindergarten at our, at our uh, kindergarten years and years ago at St. John's, we have an enormous painting of this very scene that we hope um, to restore and, and relocate at some point on this campus. It's a scene that is lovely and beautiful. 
But it's also a scene that's hard to overestimate in terms of how radical that scene was in the society in which Jesus was teaching and living. You see, in first century society, children had no social status in the village, none whatsoever, which makes this story even more fascinating because, you see, Jesus wasn't just acknowledging kids. He wasn't just being nice to the kids who were around him. He was placing them literally before the disciples in terms of their faith formation, which was unheard of. But it does beg the question, why? Why did Jesus care so much? Why make such a big deal out of it? I mean, kids didn't have any power. They didn't have any influence. They weren't going to invite him to dinner later on. They weren't going to vote for Jesus for, you know, tribal leader or anything. Why would Jesus care so much about these kids? Well, it's hard to say unless, perhaps, unless you take a close look at, at what these kids will be a part of in, in their future and in the, especially the, the future of the early church. So let's take a look, and and I hope you don't mind a little bit of a history lesson. Bear with me. If you don't like history, just sort of hang in there for just a few minutes, all right? Because we're going to go through a a little bit of of Christian history. It's fascinating because because if you look at our 2,000-year Christian history, we've had a number of of ups and downs. We've heard about all the ups and downs in, in Christian history, from the incredible growth in the first few centuries of the Christian church, the fastest growing social movement in the history of the world. Likewise, just a few centuries later during the Crusades when thousands of Muslims and Christians were literally slaughtered at the hands of one another. We celebrate, as we should, the Christian movement that formed the first public hospitals and public schools. While at the same time and in the same era, we, we see a church that was, that was the wealthiest and most corrupt institution in the world during the Middle Ages. Highs and lows, no doubt. But catch this, and this is interesting. Almost every high the church experienced, whenever we enjoyed a significant upswing, when the church was at its very best and at its most vital, it was almost always the result of a youth movement within the church. Let me say that again. Any time the church was at its very best, at its most vital, it was almost always the result of a youth movement within the church. For example... 325, when the church faced its first heresy and the very real possibility of total collapse. It took a 27-year-old young man named Athanasius to lead to, lead, uh, to a leading role against that heresy and, and to help the church write the Nicene Creed. What about 1208? We like to look at St. Francis as, as just sort of that monument in our gardens who's lifting up his arms and, and, and birds are flying around. He's the patron saint of ecology, after all. But, but notice that his ministry began in very significant ways in his early 20s. He came from a very wealthy, a very prestigious family. But he decided in his early 20s to stand up against his family and against the wealth of the church by denouncing all of his possessions people throughout Europe began to follow his example, which is why a lot of historians believe his movement was one of the most significant in the church's first 1,000 years. 
just a couple of centuries later. You've heard this, surely, 1517, right? Martin Luther. But you remember, right, that Martin Luther was only 33 years old when he stood up against the Pope and the Roman Emperor and reformed the church by nailing 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And just five years later, when William Tyndall, he was only 28 years old when he literally broke the law, especially church law, but also civil law, and translated the Bible into English. He would be burned at the stake because of it. Just six years later, John Calvin, at this time a teenager, only 19 years of age, John Calvin began writing the Institutes of Christian Religion. It was a book that would literally change Europe. Now, we know of John Calvin because he is sort of the patron saint of the Presbyterian Church, United Church of Christ, Reformed churches throughout America and and around the world. But it's fascinating, really, that he began this significant work when he was only 19 years of age. What about John Newton? 1748, um, 1748, we think of him as the author of Amazing Grace. But it's important to remember that even his work began at a super early age. His life was as a slave trader until his early 20s when he converted to Christianity and began to um, advocate for the abolition of slavery in England, which led him eventually to write Amazing Grace. But he also knew that this would take an exceedingly long period of time, and it did, 60 years before the, the British would outlaw the slave trade throughout the British Empire and what of Mother Teresa. We think of her as that very small woman with a powerful punch, not literally a powerful punch. I need to find a better phrase than that, huh? Who, Who was remarkable in her care for this world and for people around her. But her ministry began at the age of 18, when at that point is when she decided to to go to Calcutta, India, to live and work alongside the poorest of the poor in that, in that region. And likewise, and finally, and I promise you I'm finished, uh, Billy Graham. Again, we think of this very tall, statuesque man with silver, beautiful silver hair who, who just dominated a room whenever he stepped inside. But you know, right, that he began his, his first crusade when he was only 28 years old, when he welcomed 6,000 people to a civic center in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Then, less than two years later, when he was still in his 20s, age 29, he had his first massive crusade in Los Angeles where he welcomed 350,000 people. You see what I'm talking about here, right? The point is this. The Christian movement at its most vital has been a youth movement motivated, inspired, and led by young people. It's remarkable. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us at the very least this. That Jesus' concern for children in Mark's gospel here that we just read through in Mark chapter 10, that his concern went far beyond just being nice, right? He sees within them their possibility. He sees deep within them their potential. He sees deep within them their drive. And he says, don't stand in their way. Do whatever it takes to bring them closer to me because through them you will see and experience and enjoy the kingdom of God. Now look, 
I don't know about you, but I feel like we're facing tons of question marks about the future of our society, our communities, our country, our world. It's just been a weird sort of time period, right, with COVID and all the other challenges that are before us. And now the horrible images that we experience in places like Afghanistan, having to to bid farewell to 13 servicemen and then so many other Afghans who are just wanting to have a little bit of hope in their future. And yet this future seems to be filled with question marks. But maybe because of it, I'm convinced now more than ever before. And friends, this is my plug. This is the advertisement, the shameless plug that I promised you about. You ready? I promise you this. I am more convinced than ever before that the most important thing we can do right now as a church and as a society is to invest unprecedented trust, money, and opportunity in our younger generations. Listen to them, to learn from them, to trust that the Holy Spirit is already working through them and very much alive within them, and then therefore to get behind them in significant ways. The alternative, who knows, but I would guarantee you that it becomes a generation or two that will feel disillusioned, that will feel depressed, that will feel driven away, and, and that's, not, that's not a future, that's not an alternative that's filled with much hope. We must, in my estimation, we must inspire a new youth movement for these pivotal times. So, you might ask, how? Well, there are lots of different ways, but again, our shameless plug here at St. John's, and it is significant, and I I do mean it, help out. For those of you who help in youth movements and in in children's and youth and young adult activities and ministries, thank you. For those who don't, help out out. It's now, it's more important now than ever before. Become a volunteer with our Barnabas Connection Ministry at at Knox Middle School. Sign up to be a third grade reading tutor um, at at Eisenberg Elementary School with our Gator Reading Program. Friends, they are experiencing now and watching sort of test results come back in. They're engaging with students who have been away essentially from this discipline of reading for a year, and, and, and the results are not good. It's critically important that we engage with these students in a one-on-one fashion. It's critically important that ministries like these help to inspire this, this group of kids who just want to read. And you know, right, if they can't read, they won't have a future. And so now is a great time to become involved. Do the same to sponsor one of our students in Guatemala. Volunteer for our child development center across the street, our most significant ministry at St. John's. Uh, insist that your kids and grandkids and their friends show up at Kingdom Kids or youth groups or Young Life or Fellowship of Christian or Christian Athletes or of, or, or of any of our scouting programs. If you're an adult, mentor, 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 mentor a young person. Listen deeply to their input and share with them significant responsibilities. Stop doing everything for them, but help to teach them, train them in the ways of being a leader. Walk alongside them and give them the tools that they need. Model for them the life of a servant. Advocate for our, for our kids and for our schools whenever and wherever you can. There are far few, there, there are just simply not enough people advocating for our schools and for our kids these days. You do just that. Pray for the girls and boys of, of this world from America to Afghanistan. And if you're a young adult, give your community and give your church a chance. Put yourself out there as a leader. Show up. 
For Jesus says something that is critically important for us to hear and to experience and to love. Let the children come to me. Don't stand in their way, for through them you will experience. You will, not you might, you will experience the kingdom of God. Amen.